So the elections uh, this past week in Virginia really rocked a lot of the country, and debates over schools and uh, the perceived spread of critical race theory drove passions and created another flashpoint in our country's divisions. Systemic issues of race still plague us, but did the bold actions and the legacy of Abraham Lincoln overcome the original sins of the Revolutionary War era and our original founding fathers? Ah, uh, well, let's find out. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week Politicon welcomes author of The Broken Constitution, Lincoln, Slavery, and the Refounding of America. He's Harvard Law Professor Noah Feldman, and he's going to discuss with us the salience of race in our modern politics and why he believes we should actually be looking at the outcome of the Civil War as our nation's real founding. Feldman's also the host of the podcast Deep Background with Noah Feldman, and hopefully he's going to be able to help us understand these issues and some of them that arose from America's rebirth after the Civil War, many of them still defining our politics today. Secession is polling higher now than at any time in recent memories, definitely almost at any time since the Civil War. So hopefully Professor Feldman can answer the question, how the heck are we going to get along? Thank you very much for, for joining us. Actually, before you came on, uh, my, I and the producers of the show were having a little debate about Virginia and this whole, um, this whole situation and, and the outcome in the Virginia gubernatorial election that everybody's been talking about this week, obviously. And um, before I even say what everybody else has been thinking about, you tell me your thoughts on uh, Glenn Youngkin becoming the... Uh, next governor of Virginia, the first Republican and or, or only the second Republican in 25 years there. So uh, wh what's going on? <laughs> it always takes a little while after a surprising electoral result like this one to process it. And we have to be careful about diving too much into the immediate explanations. But I think what is clear is that Democrats, progressives generally, need to find some counter-narratives to a pretty powerful and effective narrative that's coming from the conservative side that warns that somehow progressives are asking the country to fundamentally change its thinking about where we came from, who our founders are, and what the role of race is in the country. And, you know, as we all know, most people who say to pollsters that they're against critical race theory can't say even to begin with what critical race theory is. And so it's not about the content of any particular point of view. It's, I think, at a much broader level about the narrative. And what I think people who are scared of critical race theory are saying, again, they don't know what it is, but what they're scared of is the idea of a narrative that says, hey, this country has serious problems. Racism is in some ways baked into our country from the beginning. And people are responding by saying, you know, that can't be right, or I don't want to hear that, or what does that say for our capacities for progress as a country? So my own view is that we need a narrative that will replace the scared narrative, and I'm going to opt for the truth, which is always the best narrative you can you can produce. And I hope we'll get a chance to talk about what that narrative might be. Well, I mean, I absolutely would love to. <laughs> I'm always about the truth, and I'd love to hear a solution um, or, or, or alternatives to what's what's going on. But I, I guess I mean I live in North Carolina. I um, am. am 
living with a uh, currently a lieutenant governor here who is is adamantly against uh, critical race theory, a black lieutenant governor who's adamantly again cr- against criminal uh, uh, critical race theory, or at least as he defines it. And and what I hear, because I agree with you. Uh, most people don't know what it is. Um, they're scared of socialism. Socialists are going to turn us into a socialist nation, but mm, nine times out of 10, they don't know what socialism means. Um, and when you identify certain socialist ideas, like, you know, free public schooling, um, <laughs> they, they like those things. Um, but when I hear someone talk about critical race theory, a lot of it, or at least a lot of the, uh, the fears about it or the beliefs about what it is entail this belief that we are trying to or that that schools are trying to or anyone who is promoting critical race theory wants white children especially to feel guilty um, for the wrongs of their ancestors. Um, and and specifically, you know, I think Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State, got dragged a few weeks ago because she was on The View as a guest host and was asked about this topic. And she said, you know, I want every black child to feel beautiful in their blackness. I want them to be proud of themselves. I want them to – I'm paraphrasing, obviously, here um, – But she says, but at the same time, I don't believe that we need to or should make any white child feel guilty uh, for being white. And I think, Noah, correct me if I'm wrong, 99% of rational thinking Americans heard what she said and thought, damn right, that's exactly how it mm-hmm. should be. Everyone should mm-hmm. be proud of who they are. White children mm-hmm. should not feel guilty for being white, etc. But I got to tell you, she caught some shit in the Twitter sphere from, you know, Torre and a few other pretty popular progressives called the um, spokesperson for white supremacy for having an opinion like that. Are even people on the left, those people who dragged her, Mm -hmm. do you think that even they know what critical race theory is? Um, uh, Or is there a misconception there too? I don't think you can generalize to everybody, but I think what we should do is probably set aside the technical question of what critical race theory was when it was born in legal academia, you know, 25 years ago. Um, I'm a law professor, so I happen to know know what it is in its original context, but it's one of those phrases that now doesn't have the original meaning that it had. And I think it's much more productive to turn instead to the question of what actually did happen in our history and give give a good narrative about that. And then we can also talk, after we know what the facts are, about a separate question, which is what kind of responsibility should we today feel for things that happened 150 years ago or 225 years ago? That's a genuine and a really interesting question, but it's only a question you can begin to answer if you start with the facts. So with your permission, let me say a word or two about that. Where did critical race theory as a a theory, Mm -hmm. how was it born? Critical race theory came out of a an approach to looking at legal institutions 
that said, we should try to see if we can identify fundamental structural aspects of American life that are shaping results in a way that we don't like. So if you imagine that rich people always win in court and poor people always lose in court, or that management always wins and labor always loses, those are obviously gross oversimplifications, right. then you would object to that um, on the grounds that there's a fundamental power of money or of capital that's always winning. If you think that on the whole, the system is set up so that white people tend to win in court and black people tend to lose in court, and that legal institutions are set up so that there's systematic reasons to expect that if you're black, you don't get a fair shake in our system, then we wouldn't like that and we wouldn't want that. And critical race theory began as a movement among law professors, white and black, who looked at the way our legal institutions operate and said, gee, there's a whole bunch of situations where black people are systematically losing. So -hmm. that's the origin of it. Um, And in fact, Part of that claim was historical, but it mostly wasn't about history. It was, a most, it was mostly about the way things were perceived to be at that time in our legal system. Since then, critical race theory has come to include, in some people's minds, also the history of race in this country. And I think that's probably not what critical race theory was originally about. It wasn't really focused on where we came from. It was mostly focused on where we are and whether there's a basic fundamental unfairness. I think if you phrase the question as, you know, is our system fundamentally unfair to some people based on their color, it doesn't seem quite as controversial because you might say in the answer to that, well, that was definitely true in the beginning of our country because we had slavery. And then it was true in the period of time, you know, 80 years when we had formal segregation in lots of the country. So of course, at those times, things were systematically set up so that black people would lose. And then the hard question is, What about since then? What about since the civil rights movement and since the end of segregation? But do you think that even the majority of people now, or or even a large plurality of people now, would argue that the answer to the question that you just asked is no today? I mean, I think even those people who I know, um, and obviously this is all empirical, but even those people who I know who voted for Trump... (laughs) Um, would still say, yeah, I mean, I will admit that even today, yes, the system is set up unfairly um, and and favors some people who, based on their race, or disfavors Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. people based on their race. And I would think that even a lot of people who voted for Trump, I don't think there are many people... Well, here's, here's here's where I think language really comes into it. If you ask a lot of people, including white people who voted for Trump, are you racist? The great majority, pretty much every Trump voter that I know, would say, no, of course I'm not racist. Right. You know, I don't think that white people are any better than black people. And I don't think that, you know, white people have any fundamental um, racial superiority to black people. Of course I don't believe that. That's, that's medieval. I don't believe that. So then you ask them, well, if that's the case, if you're not racist, why do you think it is that if you look at empirical measures— Black people have so much less wealth in the United States than white people. And there people get, you know, there the answers get dicey, right? Some people will say honestly, well, maybe it follows from the fact of centuries of slavery followed by nearly a century of segregation that ended 
you know, only in the lifetimes, certainly of my parents, right? I mean, I was born in 1970, which makes me, I guess, technically middle-aged. Um, but the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, just six years before I was born. And segregation wasn't completely dead even then. The Civil Rights Movement was still going on. So this is very, very recent in historical terms. So some Trump supporters will say, yeah, you're right. You know, that must have had some effect. And it probably is a big part of the reason that we still have inequality in our country today. But other but people sounds, will say, no, that was a long time ago. It's all over. But, but, you know, it's, like, but it's, Hold on. But it sounds like the, the first question that they were asked when they said, you know, if, you're asked, if you ask someone who was, I mean, we're using Trump supporters in a general way again and uh, – because that's what <laughs> that's what we do nowadays is we lump people well, into one or two. We're human beings. We're human beings. We're trying. But to I'm going to I'm going to do it too. So so if you ask someone who supported uh, Glenn Youngkin, so we'll use that mm-hmm. one instead. Mm-hmm. Are you racist? And they would say no. I agree with you there. But then I I think I get lost when there's a follow up question. Well, then why do you think? Because it sounds as if though you're implying no. Your answer shouldn't be no. I'm not racist. Your answer should be yes. I am racist. So well, that's, I think that's, that's where, where I think it, we need a we need we need a distinction. I mean, we need to draw a really clear distinction, and the distinction is between racism that individual people have in their hearts, and the idea that the system still has features in it that come from a history where racism was predominant. And I right, think but th- this but is where, can't people this is where... be separated there? But yeah, because I think yes, that that's what's getting people so. upset is that I, I, I agree even you. Joy Reid herself said this week, this week when on Tuesday mm-hmm. night, you know, some people, and she's not someone who's been gentle <laughs> at all when discussing this, um, that some people in the suburban Richmond area, a lot of people in the country, are tired of being told they are racist. Is yeah, that- and I think we need a distinction. We need a really, really clear distinction, which I think is already built into a lot of views, but maybe we don't observe it carefully enough. And the distinction is between any individual person being a racist and the system still having features left over from the time of official racism in it. And it seems to me that I agree with you. I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. And so I where think is we that should not be saying How you're we- racist. So this is so this where or, the distinction or, or lies. That you, nor nor that you support racism because I think yeah, a lot of people of would take not. offense to that. Yeah. So where so where is that distinction then? So here's how here's how I would do it. So I go back to the founding of the Constitution, and I do this in in my new book, The Broken Constitution. I go back to the founding of the Constitution in 1787, and I say, let's be honest: was there racism and slavery in the Constitution? Yeah. There was, because there was the three-fifths compromise, Mm -hmm. which we all know about, and there was a promise that the international slave trade would remain in place for at least 20 more years. And there was the Fugitive Slave Clause, which said that if you were an enslaved person and you escaped to the north, the northern states, not the southern states where they had slavery, but the northern states where they didn't formally have slavery, had to recognize the legality of slavery and return you. So, you know, that's those are facts, and we learn them in civics, um, or we should learn them in civics. But does that mean that the Constitution after the war between the states or the Civil War, was still racist? No, because as I argue in the book, when Abraham Lincoln emancipated slaves in the South, he broke the compromise. He made it impossible for us to return to a system where our constitution was based on slavery. And after that, we ratified the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which ended slavery, guaranteed equal protection for everybody, and allowed people of color to vote. Now, remember... There was no guarantee of equality in the original Constitution. The idea of the equal protection of the laws, that only comes in in the 1860s. We didn't even have that in our Constitution. 
But once we did that, we changed our fundamental constitution. We broke the original constitution and we made it into something new. And that new constitution guarantees equality and it guarantees liberty for everybody. And it is not a racist constitution. It's not. It's a constitution that is, in fact, based on anti-racism. Now, it's not been perfectly implemented. And of course, we had segregation after that. So I'm not telling a story about how you know, there's been you know, peace and light and justice and equality in America throughout its history. But I am saying that our constitution itself is not the original constitution. So I think I mean, most that people is are a smart enough also, to follow I mean, that. That is a little bit hyperbolic in the sense that it is not necessarily – I mean, we still have all of those aspects of the original constitution. We just now have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that, that are, I guess, some people would say are simply a Band-Aid on the original sin of that con- – we never, we never abolished that original constitution. We never erased the three-fifths uh, compromise. We did. Or no, that- no. The three-fifths, the three-fifths compromise was explicitly – Overturned, but it's still by there. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. No, it's not. I mean, it's it is dead letter. It's not part of the Constitution. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments eliminated the Three Fifths Compromise. But but so I, my, I, I want to push back a little bit more, only because I totally hear what you're saying. I get that it's not it's it's dead letter. But there's a lot of there's a lot of um, emphasis on symbolism especially in the last year or so, taking down these symbols of, uh, you know, Confederate war heroes and, and changing the names of buildings and getting rid of Jefferson Memorial, et cetera. And the arguments that some, of pe- some people who would support some of those things would have are that, you know, it's still written in the Constitution, the document that we fa- – that our founding document as it is, the, the official – constitution that's on display at the National Archives or wherever it is still includes that. And it, yes, does include these amendments that nullify that part, but it is still the original document. Um, well, I'm, not, I'm all for telling the truth about history. I mean, it's, it's in there. It was there from the beginning, but it is no longer an operative part of our constitution. Right. In the same way that you know, we passed a prohibition amendment saying you couldn't sell alcohol, uh, manufacture or sell alcohol, and then we repealed that amendment but if you look at the National Archives, you know, the original amendment's written in there, but it's repealed. So I guess the point that I'm making is the following. Our constitution had, we had slavery in our country. This is not a secret and it shouldn't right. be treated as a secret. And we abolished that structure of our constitution, which was at a deep level based at a deep level, really was based on this compromise over slavery and which, you know, the white people at the time thought was necessary to sustain the country and that was a moral wrong and we changed that. And so so I think that's a model. The reason I'm bringing this up is, I think so exactly. So I'm trying to say this is a model for how we should talk about questions of race in our country more generally. We should begin by telling the truth and acknowledging that we have a past in which there was racism and in which the system was set up to facilitate white supremacy by virtue of the fact that there was slavery and there was segregation. Those were in the law. And we changed that. And once we changed that, we're now in a world where we're aspiring to make things better. We're working on making things better. And we're not there yet. We still have effects of the past. So it sounds as if, though, maybe you're – and I'm going to get the year wrong myself because I can't remember it. The 1619 Project perhaps should be the 1865 Project. Is that is that – are, are we saying that our real the birth well, of this country really happened at the end of the Civil War? Well, what I'm saying is both are true. 
What I'm saying is Abraham Lincoln really did say in the Gettysburg Address that we were having a new birth of freedom, literally his words. What was the new birth of freedom? We were reversing the way things had been since enslaved people were first brought to, the America, to North America in 1619 and remaking ourselves into something new. Now, if you have a new birth, it doesn't mean you pretend you never had the old birth. You did. That existed. But it, had been, it has been superseded. And so what we need to do then, if we're honest and realistic, is say, to the extent we're humanly able to, we want to get rid of the vestiges of the bad past and recognize that they're not all gone, but we want to devote ourselves to that same new birth of freedom and to our goal of improvement. And so in that sense, the 1619 Project is, to me, totally fine when it's drawing attention to the deep roots of slavery in our society, but it's also got to be added to it that we had a civil war, we broke the Constitution, we changed the Constitution, and we committed ourselves to not being a country based on racism. And so if we're falling short of that, if we look at our country and we see that systematically black people are doing worse than, than white people on a whole bunch of measures, we need to fix that because we've committed ourselves to doing better. We committed ourselves to doing better. So my argument is history is not irrelevant to how things are today. But it doesn't determine everything. Not everything is baked in by the fact that things were a certain way. It is possible to change them, with how we changed our constitution. And we need to keep on trying to change today. So, so those people who argue that critical race theory is the essentially teaching, is, is reteaching American history as if the 1619 Project's version is the truth. Um, well, first, I, I, this is a loaded question that probably shouldn't, is not going to go the direction I want it to. So let me ask. It's a theory, right? This is, the, this is teaching something like critical race theory, teaching something like the 1619 Project is akin to saying, you know, did the country start in 1619? This was the theory of uh, the, the writer who wrote that entire project, the 1619 Project. The well, it's, 1776, a it's, a, it's a collective. Yeah. The 1776 theory could essentially be this was when our country started. And someone could argue that the, the Feldman theory is the 1865 theory, that the country really started anew, a new, a new, a rebirth of freedom um, after the Civil War. Um, is you could there call anything... it the Abraham Lincoln theory. It sounds better than the, yes, the, yeah. <laughs> the, the Lincoln theory. Um, is, is there anything wrong with teaching all three of those as some people believe X, some people believe Y, some people believe Z? There's nothing wrong with that, is there? No, of course not. And I think the main point is to teach, especially since we're talking about school kids, is to teach people the facts, you know, and then let them work out the theory for themselves. You know, facts. Slavery came to the Americas, North America, starting in 1619. Fact. In 1776, you know, a group of people got together and declared that there was going to be a United States of America that was going to be independent of Britain, and they had to fight a war to do it. Fact. You know, in 1860-61, a group of states seceded. There was a huge war over it. And as a consequence of that war, slavery was abolished by Abraham Lincoln first and then by the Constitutional Amendment. And we changed the way we try to do things. Fact, for about a decade, there was an attempt to really remake Southern society. And it wasn't altogether successful. And in the consequence of that, we got segregation that then lasted, you know, from the later part of the 1870s all the way up into the 1960s. Fact, the civil rights movement happened. Martin Luther King Jr. was the central leader of it. And since then, we don't have formal legal segregation, but we still have, in lots of places in the country, north, in fact, many times more than south, lots of separation of the races. 
And last but not least, fact, the consequences of this history are still with us, and they're part of the reason that there remain persistent inequalities of wealth and education between blacks and whites in a lot of America. None of this needs to tell anybody anything about what their own internal beliefs are. You know, we shouldn't be telling anyone, hey, you're a racist. That is almost never a functional or a useful thing to be telling people. And it also might not be true. And this is sort of the punchline. It could be the case that not one person in our country harbored racist beliefs. And we still would be living in the country that we inherited where there was racism. And so that might still have effects, even if not even one person today has any racist bone in his or her body. Okay, so what you have just said is one, sort of how I was taught U.S. history when I was in school <laughs> already. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, maybe without the Lincoln theory, because it hadn't been articulated as well as you have, have articulated it yet. Um, but it's also what I believe from having a child who is going through public schools now is sort of how American history is taught in schools in 2021 also. So what is it that people think is, being, is, is infiltrating our schools right now? Um, and how do those who support teaching the truth <laughs> – combat the, the false narratives that, that I, can't, I don't even want to use the word critical race theory because I don't yeah. think that's what is being used, but how do, you, yeah. how do, you how do people combat that um, narrative that clearly was successful in Virginia? Well, one thing to do is to recognize what one aspect of what people are afraid of, and you mentioned it already, Clay, and that is that people are afraid that they are being told or that their kids are going to be told that they should feel collectively guilty about the past. Now, there are countries in the world where they do teach people to be collectively guilty, right? After World War II, uh, we occupied Germany, and we put a fair amount of pressure on the German leadership to put a curriculum in place in the schools, which they taught for more than 50 years, more like 75 years now. And in that curriculum, Germans are taught that they bear responsibility, moral responsibility, for what Nazi Germany did and for the Holocaust. In contrast, in Japan there isn't a similar curriculum. The, the Japanese public schools don't teach a curriculum like that. So I just want to point out there are situations where, you know, some societies do teach some form of collective guilt. I don't think that's particularly American, and I don't think it's likely to work very well or improve circumstances. And so I don't we think anyone should be taught... the ballot box, that's for sure. Yeah, and for sure, yeah. <laughs> and so I don't think we should be... We should be really clear that nobody is being told to feel guilty for the history of the United States. I think that's, that would go a long way to begin with. Another would be to maybe move away from the use of the word racism to describe mm. the systemic inequalities Ooh, say it again. that we have in our country. <laughs> so, I mean, look, this is, you know, plenty of people will say, well, what are you talking about? It is racism. And what I'm saying is, let's take a deep breath around the question of what something is or isn't. And let's ask what we're trying to fix. What we're trying to fix is inequality that comes from the system. That's different from inequality that comes from an individual person treating somebody differently because he's white than if he's black. It's a different kind of inequality. System inequality is inequality that comes from a reality that, you know, we live in a capitalist country, which I think is good because I'm a supporter of capitalism. But in capitalism, if you start with a certain number of marbles, 
you're going to have a big advantage over someone who starts with a lot fewer marbles. Right? It's just a basic principle. The whole point of capitalism is you put your money to work for you through investment, and if you start with a lot less money than another person, you can't make the investment, and you're going to end up even further behind. So we should be acknowledging the fact that our system, our capitalist system, which again, I support, only works the way it's supposed to work if people have roughly the same amount when they start. Do you know, you, so can I bi- stop you for a second and ask you yeah, if you feel if you feel the need to defend your capitalist system? I mean, because I find the same thing happens to me too. I'm a capitalist also, but I feel like sometimes there are certain policies that are, you know, public schooling, socialist. I mentioned that earlier, and I sure. find that I often have to say, "But I am a capitalist." <laughs> are you afraid of Are you afraid <laughs> of being uh, accused of being a communist if you don't clarify very carefully that you're a capitalist? I mean, I, you know, these days, as you know, Clay, everyone can be criticized from every direction. Right. Right. So if you say that you're a capitalist, someone will tell you, well, that's terrible because you should be a socialist. And if you say that you're, you know, but on the other hand, if you're not really clear that you're a capitalist, someone else will say that you're a communist. You're a communist, so right. You, you, it, it, this is the reality of our contemporary world. So I just try to be honest about what I actually believe. Right. Um, I'm sorry to get you I, off track, but it made me no, laugh because no, I, mean, I do the and same thing. And by the thing. way, it's not, that, it's not that I love capitalism. It's that I look around the world and we see, especially looking at the example of China, that, you know, China just managed to bring hundreds of millions of people out of poverty using capitalism. Right. They tried it with communism for, you know, 50 years and they made almost – no progress. In fact, in a lot of ways, they made things much worse for people. Then they said, okay, we're going to get over ourselves. We're still going to call ourselves the Communist Party of China, but we're going to actually become the Communist Capitalist Party of China. And it worked. So, it has worked you know, very – it's, it's hard to argue with success. a lot of other – there's other than a lot of the system. It's hard to argue with success. But I got you that off said, track. I'm sorry. No, no. Well, I was just going to say that said, if capitalism operates with no social safety network, right, right, right. then it produces civil war. Responsible you know, and 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 responsible capitalism and with with yeah. guardrails, right? Yeah, you have to have guardrails, and you have to have a system that enables two things. It has to enable the absolutely poorest people who otherwise would starve or not have access to education or healthcare. It has to give them what it takes for them to have that. And the reason that it has to do that is this is the second point: is capitalism is supposed to get everybody into the game of being able to improve their lives. And if someone starts behind- with no marbles. <laughs> with no marbles or with negative marbles. Right. You know, right. if you start with debt, if your parents are in debt and you grow up in you know, an environment where you have to accrue debt for everything you do, then it's going to be awfully hard to make money by investing the money that you do not have to invest. And so- you know, that's what capitalism has always believed in. It's always believed that if you give people the capacity to succeed, they will have the opportunity to succeed and they will try. Well, let me let me use this as an ex- as a to segue into a question that I've been wanting to ask you since since the moment I knew you were coming on. Um, when did th- th- what you've just said is something that so many people in the country totally agree with, totally understand. So many people in places like West Virginia, in, in Western Virginia, mountainous sure. uh, Appalachian Virginia, sure. yep. um, so many people in Ohio, in states that we consider to be red states now, absolutely agree with everything you just said. In fact, the economic policies of the Democrat Party um, were far more popular in places like Missouri and Ohio and 
Indiana um, for decades. Mm-hmm. And somewhere, and maybe this will be your next book, um, somewhere, or maybe it was your divided divided by God book already. <laughs> I'm not sure. You'll tell me. Um, uh, okay. Somewhere we switched. The, the economic policies of both parties tended to stay the same, but, but the Republican Party tended to be the more elitist, academic, educated party. Um, the, the, the Yaleys, like, um, the, sure, like, the like George H.W. Bush, right? Um, and George and, W. Bush. I mean, George W. Right? Bush went to Yale, too. Well, uh, we're not we're not 100% sure whether he graduated in his own, but you know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, the uh, and then the Democrat Party was the Bill Clintons, the the um, you know the Dick Gephardts, uh, the working class, every man sort of party. Mm-hmm. And I guess was it was it in the 2000s um, at some point? Was it was it? When Obama became president, there was a switch. Um, I guess the the question I'm trying to ask is, how much has social policy, because because a lot of this, I'm guessing, and you'll tell me if you think I'm right or not, but a lot of it has been social policy, this um, critical race theory, this schools um, constantly being told that our school boards have power over what our kids learn and the, Somehow the Democrat Party became the party of the elites, um, and the Republican Party became the party of the working everyman socially. But ironically, the economic change never changed. You know, the Republican Party still seems to support the, you know, big business, the billionaire class. The, Re- the Democrat Party economically tends to support the working class. Um, but the social messages what we're talking about here with critical race theory and the fear-mongering yep. around it. They have completely different teams um, <laughs> for those parties. Where did that switch happen? And how can, how can the Democrats and progressives re-attract <laughs> the working class if their social message tends to be so academic and elitist? Well, you're asking, you know, one of the deepest sets of questions that you could ask about modern politics. I agree with you, first of all, that the key inflection point is when the cultural politics in our country became more important for determining people's votes than the economic policy. At some point, people stopped saying, which party is really most closely allied with my economic interests? And started asking, which party matches what I feel in my heart? Mm-hmm. what I worship in my church, um, what I feel about myself if you wake me at three in the morning and say, what do you think about yourself? Do we know and when that was? So most most political scientists say that the 1980 election, when Ronald Reagan ran for president, was the key turning point. That a lot more has happened since then, but a lot of it happened then. You know, Reagan is an interesting example All the other Republican presidents that you mentioned, and not only the ones who got elected, but also some of the people who ran and didn't get elected on the Republican side were elites. You know, it's not just the Bushes, but John McCain was an elite, you know, son and grandson of admirals. Mitt Romney's father was a senator. Um, Donald Trump's father was (laughs) not in the Senate, but he was, and barely avoided going to prison, but he was, but he was rich. Um, And Donald Trump likes to brag about, you know, 
having you know grown up fairly rich. And on the Democratic side, it's all self-made people, just about. You know, Jimmy Carter, self-made. Um, you mentioned Bill Clinton, self-made. Barack Obama, self-made. Joe Biden, self-made. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that, in that sense, the Democratic Party at its leadership level remained, kept on putting forward self-made people. But the cultural politics shifted, and Ronald Reagan was self-made. And he presented himself to ordinary working people as someone like them. He bragged that he had voted for FDR again and again and again. And he had been a liberal, and he in fact had been a, a liberal Democrat when he was in Hollywood. And he had changed, and he had shifted, and it was in reaction to the 1960s, and it made him a conservative. And so he tapped into that feeling, and sure enough, he brought a lot of people who were Democrats, registered Democrats, with him. And he did not bring them with him because of his economic vision particularly. He brought them with him because he was saying, fundamentally, I'm one of you. I'm on your side culturally and politically. While meanwhile, Jimmy Carter was a was more professorial at the same time, right? Exactly. Jimmy Carter, despite being self-made, came across as though he were some kind of an elite. By the way, one of the interesting things about most of the Democrats I mentioned, Joe Biden's the only exception, is although they were self-made, they actually went to fairly fancy colleges. And, you know, Jimmy Carter went to uh, Annapolis, to the the Naval Academy, and, you know, um, the others also went to... Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar, had gone to Georgetown, and Obama went to Columbia and then to Harvard Law School. You know, they had this kind of elite um, pedigree, not from birth, but just but, from education. And so they had done a less good job. Everything that you have said, uh, that mm-hmm. you, you, you just mentioned, Joe Biden is the first president um, yep. uh, since Reagan to not go yep. to an Ivy League college. But it seems yep. as if, though, the switch by now <laughs> yep. has become so ingrained that even another non-Ivy League president like Joe, like, mm-hmm. like Ronald Reagan, Joe Biden being literally the most working class of all yep. the presidents we've had since Reagan is not able to pull us back from whatever this switch was. I think that's right. And that's because one person can't do it since the cultural alignment has gotten deeper on both sides. So what's happened is as Republicans began to treat as their base people whose cultural values were more closely allied with uh, folks in the states that you were describing. As that's happened, the Democrats have gone in the other direction. And the Democrats have become increasingly a party of relatively elite, better educated people, even though they still have as part of their beliefs that their economic policies should support the working class, at least in principle, that's not where their cultural politics lie. And that's why when you have a set of cultural beliefs and ideals, liberal ones, that are associated with colleges and universities and with higher ed, it's really hard to convince people who didn't go perhaps to elite colleges and universities and maybe didn't go to universities at all that those folks care about them. Because they say, well, why, why should I believe that you care about us? And one last point about this, Clay. It's also worth just mentioning that in the Clinton years and the Bush years and the Obama years, policies of broad economic openness and trade, like Uh NAFTA, actually turned out not to serve the interests of uh, blue-collar American workers, middle-class blue-collar American workers. So they were worried all along that these folks didn't really have their interests at heart. And in some way, by the way, it's not that the Republicans had their interests at heart either. It's just that the Democrats, for all their claim to have their interests at heart, 
didn't really Screwed ultimately. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but let me ask. I, let me ask this too, from a historical perspective: When Republicans were intentionally or inadvertently the more elitist group the, prior to Reagan, or even through George H. Yep. W. Bush's term, when they were the more elitist, did they own it? Did they did they brag about it? Um, in the because I've noticed that my party, the Democrats, tend to be really proud of the fact that you know. We are the educated party. I'm putting that in air quotes for mm-hmm. those who are listening. Um, <laughs> we are the educated party, and the middle of America is dumb. And I think that as a Democrat from a southern state, I recoil a little bit at the at the badge of honor that it seems like Republic- Democrats have today on being the coastal elites and, and f- looking down almost on – middle American working class folks as if they are lesser. Did Republicans do that or is that a uniquely no, they, new thing they, they for didn't. us? They didn't. They said they were the party of business and they were comfortable being the party of business. And in that sense, they were open about where, what they stood for. But they did not say that they were the party of educated opinion. So, I mean, that kind of goes back to what you're talking about when you say one of the ways to combat this uh, we'll call it Virginia Tide, um, is to take words like racism out of the, or, or re- rethink how we use words like racism so that we're yeah, not rethink necessarily... How we use it so we're not using it in a way that's confusing to people. And or, that makes nor them degrading and insulting, and, right? And degrading, exactly. I mean, exactly. And I think you're getting at the very, to my mind, the very core of it here, Clay. I mean, if you're an educated person and you're talking to someone, let's say you've been to a university, a fancy university even, and you're talking to someone who's either not been to university or has been to a community college, and you say to them, listen, you're a racist, that person may not hear, I'm a racist. What they may hear is, you think you're better than I am, right? Mm -hmm. You're using class, and this is the word that we never like to use in American life. A person may feel you're using your class position to look down on me. And where does that class position come from? It comes from the fact that you went to this fancy university, which in the United States, all the way back to the founding, the way that you could get social class was not just by getting rich, but was by going to a fancy university. In fact, in America, social class is more closely connected to where and how you were educated than it is to how much money you have. Right. And, and so, and, and not even just not even a fancy university, university deepest, just going to university. Yes, to some just people going to a university that. where exactly where someone will be teaching you a set of beliefs and values that you know you and I might, roughly speaking, agree with those values. But those values are not supposed to come with a feeling that you're better than other people because you know more than they do. And I think – here's how I think about it. You know, when Ronald Reagan was running for president, Jerry Falwell was running something called the moral majority. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was evangelicals in our country who talked the talk of morality. And if you were going to run for president and say morality, 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 you were usually a Republican. That became the norm after that. Today, that's changed. Today, the Democrats are the party of morality. They but say not that the they're party mora- of religion still. But not religion. Yeah. But not religion. But their morality is a morality of we know better about the environment. We know better on race. We know better around sexual orientation and, uh, and gender orientation or gender status. And if you don't agree with us, you're backwards. There's something immoral about your viewpoint. So that's shifted. That's a huge shift, right? Now, to be really, really clear, I do think that the environment is a moral issue, and I do think that race is a moral issue, and I do think that 
equality for all Americans, even if, the, you know, no matter what their identity is a moral issue. But I do not think that it is a good idea for Democrats to continue to present these issues. And it's not really the Democratic Party per se. It's more liberals in our country to talk about these issues constantly in moralizing terms because it sends the message to people who disagree, not, you know, hey, this is my view, this is your view, but I think you're a bad person and I look down on you for your views. Mm. And I think Amen. if you want to educate people, you need to educate. If you think it's a matter of education, you never educated anyone in the history of the world by telling them, hey, you're really dumb. Do yeah, what, you've never like changed I anyone's think. mind by telling you them You can never wrong. change somebody's mind that way. You actually have to have a conversation with them. And so, and that conversation has to be grounded in respect. And I do think that that's the, what's, what's dogged the Democratic Party, namely that there's this class association that's out there. And Republicans have been really clever in trying to emphasize it and point to it, and they've gotten really skilled at it. And at this point, they're so good at it that even if there's no real issue there, as is the case with the critical race theory, they just say, hey, they're coming after you. They've got a thing. You're really not going to like it. And their base is primed to hear somebody's looking down on me. Someone's well, looking and, down and on me. Well, and Democrats now to change have a reliability problem or a credibility problem on all areas. So even when that economic, even when the economic policies and, is, and, and initiatives, sorry, of the Democrat Party may actually be better for some people in yeah. West Virginia or Ohio, yes. uh, you know, you called me a racist. So I'm not sure I trust your judgment on anything anymore, and, and we've lost yeah. credibility. And I would add one more thing, which is, let's talk about West Virginia for a second. I mean, I was fascinated by how Donald Trump could go to West Virginia in 2016 and say, I'm going to bring back coal mining. Not only <laughs> does Donald Trump know he's not going to do that, but every single voter in the state of West Virginia, including those who voted for Donald Trump, know for a fact that that's not happening. They all know it's not happening. And yet he said it, and people liked it, and it led people to vote for him. And you got to ask but, yourself why. And the answer is, if you know that nobody's coming to help you, if you know that your, the economy of your state is, at this point, so deeply messed up by the fact that the dominant industry for more than a century is dead, effectively, then you don't have to choose on the basis of economics. Like, if they really thought in West Virginia that the Democrats were really going to help them, they might have voted for the Democrats. They think nobody's going to help them. And if no one's going to help me, I might as well at least vote for the person who I feel is allied with me culturally. Or who and makes me feel proud of the yeah, career of I that I had. I mean, I, I think that Absolutely. one of, personally thinks that one of the Democrat Party's problems has been we have emphasize the need to go to college so much. College, 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 college. And a lot of people don't necessarily aspire to that. They aspire to jobs yeah. that are more blue collar, but, you know, truck driving or, or sure. manufacturing, which, you know, Sherrod Brown from Ohio has a, his whole mission is, his, his platform is the dignity of work. And I think that sometimes Democrats have tended to believe that success equals big paychecks, great education, et cetera, when for a lot of people in America, success means being able to live perfectly comfortably, but not being rich, not necessarily being the manager. Some people, some people are happy 
being in construction and leaving their worries at work and going home and relaxing and watching the game. Um, I, and- I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, look, it comes like a lot of things that the Democrats do wrong. It comes from good intentions. Right. You know, it comes from the idea that we see the economy changing. We look at the trucking industry and we say, for how many more years will there even be truck drivers? You know, autonomous vehicles are coming. And so right. then Democrats say, with some motivation, some good motivation, gee, we want to encourage people to get education so that they can operate in a technologically advanced world. They mean extremely well when they say that. What, but they disregard the dignity of the people exactly. who don't and want what those people jobs. hear is exactly when someone says, you know, in 20 years there might be there may not be any truck drivers, what a truck driver hears is you're looking down on me. Mm-hmm. And the hard part for Democrats and the most important thing to do alongside finding a narrative that tells the truth is to tell the truth and simultaneously be respectful of who people are and where they're coming from and meet them in a way that doesn't suggest that the objective in life is to be of a different social class than you are right now. Uh-huh. And it's hard for Democrats because a lot of Democrats feel that way. Amen, you know, I mean, this is, we, you have <laughs> self-made men, those self-made people, you know, you know, Bill Clinton was not, by the time he became president, where he had been when he was a child. And so he had followed that path and he wanted other people to be able to follow that path, even though he also had a capacity greater than most Democratic politicians have had since and to I engage think most with everybody want that he them to, to. Be, I think most Democrats should continue to want them to be able to if they want it. But yeah. I think we need to also recognize that a lot of people don't want that. And for you to suggest that that's the only way to happiness yeah, makes so you an elitist asshole. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, at I think least that's to true. I think that's um, true. And I guess one, one thing you could say, you know, just like some liberals say to somebody, listen, you may not be a racist, but you're part of a system that can lead to bad things. You could also say to Democrats, you may not be an elitist asshole in person. Right. But the, the way you're talking mm. makes you sound like one. And may contribute to a world where that happens. And I think that's a really, it's a hard thing for anyone to hear. Uh, I want you to, I want to take what to you it. just said and put it on a bumper sticker because that's what we suck at is putting things on bumper stickers. But what you said is dead on accurate and I love it. And I want to use it as a chance to segue really quickly because we got some very good questions that are not specifically related to these topics, but I sure. are specifically for you. So we won't be able to get to many of them. But Steph, Steph from Norfolk asks, why has it been so long since our last conversation? constitutional amendment? Steph asks a great question, and the short answer is our extreme polarization. So in order to get a constitutional amendment added to the Constitution, you need two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, (laughs) and three-quarters, and a majority of three-quarters of the state legislatures, which means you really need a lot of Americans to agree with you. And in today's political world where you know, everything is by a razor's edge. You know, the presidency by a razor's edge. The governorship of New Jersey, razor's edge. The Senate divided 50-50. It's hard to get anybody to agree on anything of sufficient importance to put it in the Constitution that everyone would then, then vote for. So that's why, it's, that's why in this period we don't have very many viable pr- proposals. Let me ask a question off the back of Steph's question here to the law professor from me. Um, so there's another way, obviously, to get a constitutional amendment. You can call a constitutional convention, which I don't know for uh, – you would know better than I. Has, has that ever happened before? Um, nope. We never, we've never used that one. Okay. If we did, my question is because I've always said – I've had some people say to me on this show and elsewhere, you know, why don't we do that? If you call a constitutional convention, is it possible to call it – 
specifically for just one particular issue, or once you open up the convention, is everything on the table? So that's a really uh, deep and important question, and no one knows for sure. Um, You could try to call a constitutional convention and restrict it to one issue, but once they're in a convention, people in a convention could propose other kinds of amendments too. Okay. So that's why I've always said to people, no, let's not open that damn can of worms. Yeah, I mean, there's that problem. There's that problem. And there's also the problem of, you know, what are the odds that we would agree? You know, James Madison, who was the chief drafter of the the Constitution, really didn't want another constitutional convention two years after the convention. Because he said it's a miracle, his word, that we agreed the first time and we're never going to agree another time. So it's just to get that kind of consensus is extraordinarily difficult. Well, he was damn right about that. Could you imagine what he would think of today? Um, <laughs> there's so many good ones here. Let me see if I can find um, another. Uh, well, Catherine from Austin, Texas asked, would it be too extreme to compare January 6th to Fort Sumter? Well, the reason I think that's maybe a little bit further than I would go is that when the shots were fired on Fort Sumter, what the seceding states were saying is, we're not just declaring our opposition to this union. We're out, and we're going to use force of arms to defend ourselves should you try to force us back in. And they had the population of, at the time, seven, and then it was more than seven states behind them who then volunteered and fought against the Union armies in a, in a long war. That's not what we had on January 6th. On January 6th, you had a very small number of people who, sure, if they had had the population of many states behind them, maybe some of those folks would have gone into open rebellion against the United States, but they did not have the numbers. And that, I think, is the fundamental difference between the two. January 6th was not representing a large movement of Americans who were prepared to take up arms against the government of the United States. Okay, um, last one. It's a little aerial um, from Trenton, New Jersey. God bless you. You're a little, a little wordy, Ariel, but here, I'm going to try to read it all. Many of the founders warned of powerful political parties. Is there any way to reduce their strength without undermining our values, like freedom of speech or association? So I, I, a political party, yeah, two-party system question. Yeah. I mean, Ariel is right that the founders were worried about political parties because they thought they drove people apart. And they thought to function as a democracy, we needed to, or a republic, we needed to be closer together. And that was a, that was a si- thing, too. James Monroe, was it, who was sort of a anti-party in general? Well, actually, Madison. 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 And um, yeah, I, Madison, I wrote actually a full biography of Madison. And the, the oh, central yes. drama was this guy thought that parties were terrible. And he designed a constitution that was designed to work without political parties. And then within five years, he and Alexander Hamilton, his buddy, the co-author of the Federalist Papers— were deep, bitter enemies, and they each went and founded the first American political parties, and they went to war with each other. So even these people who believed that parties were a problem, like Madison, came to be involved in political parties. Now, today, a lot of people think that our political parties are actually in some ways weaker than they used to be, because a lot of voters are not loyal to party, they're loyal to perspective. You know, we saw this um, just in this Virginia election, just to come back to where we started, a whole bunch of people who voted for Joe Biden, also voted for Yunkin. They crossed, I don't know which way they crossed party lines, but either they crossed party lines one time or the other time, or they're independents, you know, in the, in the you know, Northern Virginia suburbs, and they don't care that much about party. 
So in that sense, the physical parties, that is to say, the institutions of the parties, are in some ways weaker than they used to be. On the other hand, when it gets to Congress, you see that the parties vote, especially the Republican Party, do tend to vote as a block. Yeah. And in that sense, those parties are stronger. So I would say the parties are stronger in their control over their politicians. They're weaker in their control over their voters. And I think the truth is, there's no way consistent, to answer the question, there's no way consistent with respecting people's right to join any organization they want to limit the power of those parties. But the parties in some ways have become weakened. And the ultimate way to do that is if people vote back and forth across the aisle, then that weakens the parties. Well, uh, I, I appreciate that they did vote back and forth across the aisle in Virginia. Um, I think there's certain evidence that places like Chesterfield County, south of, you know, suburbs of Richmond had been very Republican and then actually switched over to vote for Joe Biden. Them yeah. coming back to Yunkin was less of a surprise. Yeah. But yes, yeah. up there's northern a, Virginia, I mean, the there's other a, way. There is a like, uh, no one has been saying this, and it may not be the take anyone wants to hear, but I do think there's a little bit of a silver lining, which is it shows you there are a lot of people who are very politically conservative who still voted for Joe Biden. And they did that because they were like enough of Donald Trump. Right. And I'm not saying those people might not go back and vote for Trump. I'm obviously worried about that. But <laughs> some part of me thinks, thank God for conservative people who don't like the Democrats but who still voted for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. Because those folks realized that it was just bad for our country at a fundamental level for that guy to be president. And we also, we also know that, that Glenn Youngkin, we had our episode last week, if you listened last week, folks who are listening now, the, the, uh, we, David Byler told us that Glenn Youngkin really did his best to distance himself from Trump, to not be uh, seen yeah. as a Trump Republican. So that certainly didn't hurt him there either. But I tweeted on Tuesday night, maybe even earlier than people wanted me to, that any, any Republican who thinks they have switched Virginia into the red column is going to be probably as accurate about that as any Democrat who thinks they've switched Georgia into the blue column, um, because I don't think that those are going to stay where they are right now. Um, I got to say, if, if, if for those folks who are listening, um, uh, Noah Feldman's book um, about Lincoln, The Broken Constitution, it's got a long subtitle, The Broken Constitution, Lincoln, Slavery, and, and the refounding of America. The refounding of America. Thank you. Uh, broke it, the broken Constitution, Lincoln, slavery, and the refounding of America. Um, you should definitely check it out because it's a very, it's a very interesting look at well, everything we've been talking about here too. But I've got to say personally. I've already been a fan of yours. Scorpions, I absolutely loved. I'm a Supreme Court nerd. A few weeks ago, if the folks who were listening a few weeks ago remember that we got into the, I got into a little tiff with somebody about the, uh, uh, about the Supreme Court and someone uh, who was a guest tried to insist to me that, that FDR had expanded the court um, intentionally. And I said, no, 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 he didn't expand it. He tried to expand it. He tried to expand it. He didn't, and he argued with me um, and insisted that, yes, he had expanded it. Um, I only knew that he did not successfully do that because of Noah Feldman and his book, Scorpions, um, about the switch in time that saved nine. Um, you mentioned a, a biography of James Madison also. Mm -hmm. um, yep, Three uh, Lives of James Madison, yep. Okay, so um, Divided by God, which is a, a really in, incredible look at how religion has played a role in, in the country and our politics. One of the most prolific writers um, that we've ever had on the show. So I really encourage you to, to check out Noah Feldman in general. But The Broken Constitution is very timely for right now. Did you, did you write it because you knew that this critical race theory 
issue was going to be front and center for a while and you wanted to, to kind of give it some context or was it just convenient that um, these two things happened at the same time? No, I was really focused on the question that a lot of us are focused on, which is, you know, what, how should we think about our legacy of slavery? And having written on, on Madison, I had to confront it because he was, after all, a great genius and a great American and also a slaveholder. And I thought to myself, okay, now I've understood that story, but what about the moment when it all changed? I think I should know more about that. And so that's why I dove into it, to try to answer those questions. And it turned out that other people are interested in that too, so that's, that's good. But that's how I write all my books. I choose a problem that I want to figure out, and then I do the research to try to answer it, and then I write the book to try to say what I came up with. Well, it time very timely, very timely and appropriate right now. So folks, check that out. There'll be information in our show notes um, about how you can find that particular book. But I do encourage you to, to at least read Scorpions because I loved it. Um, <laughs> but Thank you. You're so too. nice. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then, and I'll just hope that maybe one of the next books that you write will answer the question: When the did we switch? Who was in charge of the moral authority versus the elitist and all that yeah, stuff you were talking question. about? Because I think that's a fascinating situation uh, issue that, I mean, I wish we could figure out how to get it back. But for now, I'll just ask you, um, how the heck are we going to get along? The way we can get along is to emphasize that we have a lot of things in common, that we actually have core beliefs in common. And you know, if you ask what are those beliefs, I think those are the belief in basic equality and freedom. We really all believe, all of us believe that everyone should get a fair shake and have an equal opportunity to succeed. We actually all believe that we should be free and free to express ourselves and express our beliefs and associate with the people whom we want to associate with. We have lots of disagreements about how to do those things, and that's understandable because we're a country with lots of different points of view. But we agree on our overall objectives. And the way we get along is by respectfully remembering that the people on the other side, whom we do not agree with on lots of things, do share those common objectives. And as long as I respect you, we can get along. And I don't have to agree with you to respect you. And if we thought we had to agree to have mutual respect, we never would have had a country in the first place because we've had disagreement the whole time. So to me, that's the takeaway. The takeaway for our moment of polarization is remember that the people on the other side want the same things that you want and have the same deep beliefs that you have. They are not bad people. And, you know, I cannot tell you how many times I say that. And, you know, it sounds to me like it's obvious. And people say, no, no, no. I get this on both sides. Those people are really bad. And I try to explain, no, they're really not. They don't agree with you, but they are not bad people. And they might support policies that you think lead to bad results, but that's not the same as being a bad person. So we need to get back to that, and we will. I am very confident that we will get along by eventually recognizing that reality. <laughs> 